And so we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer. We looked last week at the first section. And in this first section, uh, you could kind of see it pretty clearly as we read it. I'm going to start in verse 9. I'll read it. Uh, from verse 9 and we'll finish the verse 15 and then we'll kind of dissect it and then we'll start looking at the part that we're looking at this morning but look at verse 9 with me pray then Jesus says pray then like this our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Well, last week we looked at the beginning of this prayer. You notice it in verse 9. He starts with our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that would be the first half of this prayer. You could take this prayer and you could divide it into two sections. The first section being something totally focused on God and His character. Uh, The first is adoration to God. It's praying that God's name would be hallowed, sanctified, set apart, treasured. And this is really the heart cry of every believer. A true disciple of Jesus begins with this strong desire to see God's name glorified. That's where it all begins. Even before we get to the everyday stuff, we're praying for God's name to be hallowed, His kingdom to come, His will to be done. And then in verse 11 and 12 and 13, He zeroes in on the regular street-level type of requests that you might ask in a typical day and throughout your week as you go through and you face different challenges throughout the week. Uh, he, he, he shows us that God's not only concerned about the big, lofty things like His name and His glory and His kingdom and His will being done in the whole world. He also cares about your everyday stuff. And so He teaches us to pray about bread, provision, forgiveness, Uh, The daily way we live and that we would not be left alone to our own devices and led into evil. This is Jesus, the Son of God, teaching us how to approach God the Father. He's teaching us how to pray. And so if we want to know how to pray and if we want to be a praying people, and if we want to see God respond to the prayers of His people in showering us with the gifts of His blessing, I think it begins with understanding what we pray about. And so last week we looked at this. Uh, We started with these four principles. If we're going into the school of prayer, Christ's school of prayer, that's what we called it, uh, we got to start with understanding some principles. The first one we looked at last week was we got to watch out for treasonous prayer. Uh, You don't want to be committing treason in your prayer, and that would be asking God for tools to serve in your own rebellion, or asking God to polish your idols. That would be asking God just to get more stuff so you'd be better served to just do things your own way. A treasonous prayer is the kind of prayer where you have no reference to God, no reference to His glory, no reference to His purposes in the world. You just begin with your own desires and your own plans and your own ambitions and you're asking God to jump on board with that and bless you as you seek to do whatever you want in the world. That would be treason. And yet often in our own prayers, if we are not careful to examine our prayers, our prayers can be very self-centered. And James, we saw last week, calls it adultery when we ask God for things to serve our worldly, even carnal ambitions. 
And so we learned that it's not about us in prayer. We start with this principle, it's not about us. It's not about us. And then we looked at the second thing Jesus teaches us. Jesus wants to move us in our prayers, even our private prayers, even the prayers that you pray in the closet by yourself, however you do this in your own private devotion. He teaches us to move from individualistic prayers to corporate prayers. And if you notice in the Lord's Prayer, how many words are the singular pronoun, I or my or me, none of them are there. It's all plural. Our Father, give us this day. Forgive us our debts. It's all plural. And so Jesus is reminding us to think broader and expand our prayers. I, me, mine prayers are not bad or are not sinful, but Jesus is pushing us, I think, gently to broaden the scope of what we think about when we pray. And I think if you were to actually take this very literally, and I think Jesus intends us to, and understand this to be Jesus himself teaching us how to pray, and you began to then pray in your own private prayers using more plural pronouns, our, we, us, you would find it reprioritizing your prayers, even reshaping the way you pray. And so he moves us from individualistic to corporate. He moves us, and this is maybe the most clear, from man-centered praying to God-centered praying. The first prayer out of Jesus' mouth as he teaches his disciples to prayer is for God's name to be hallowed, uh, set apart, sanctified. That's the main undercurrent. Even in the rest of the prayer, it's all about God. And so it's his name that's first. We move from being man-centered to God-centered. And then we saw that in Jesus inviting us to pray for the coming kingdom, which is essentially saying, look, Jesus, wrap it up. Jesus return, come back, Maranatha. I mean, that's what kingdom come means. When we're praying that, Jesus is inviting us into big prayers. When he he tells us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he's inviting us to cosmic, global prayers where we are praying for the nations. And we are praying for God's word and his gospel to be spread throughout not only this community, but throughout all the world. I mean, if we want people to be doing the will of God on earth as it is in heaven, that means we want all people to see God for who he is and to trust in Jesus and to be converted so that they can do the will of God in their own lives. And so this is our prayer, and this is how Jesus is teaching us. But then, in verse 11, if if we ever began to think that God only is concerned about the big stuff, his name and his glory and his kingdom and his will, and we maybe, by overemphasizing that, began to think, well, does God even care about my, my daily needs, or the struggles I'm going through, the financial hardships that have faced me and, or are facing me? Well, Jesus begins in verse 11 to focus the prayer and turn a little bit of a corner saying after we've asked for God's name to be hallowed well one of the next things we begin petitioning God for is the daily regular care of our heavenly father in Matthew chapter 5 verse 1 or sorry, verse 3, when, when the Beatitudes begin and the very first Beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit Remember that, blessed are the poor in spirit. The very first characteristic of a believer is that they see themselves as spiritually poor. Well, now Jesus is teaching those beggars, those spiritually poor people, how to get what they need. 
We begin by recognizing we have nothing, but then it's the heart of that beggar who then looks to God and says, God, you have everything I need. And now Jesus is teaching the beggars how to beg. He's teaching us how to come to the Father and get everything we need for life and for godliness. And look at, he gives us three petitions, daily bread, daily forgiveness, and then daily guidance. And I want to give us, again, we're going to go back into Christ's school of prayer, and we're going to draw out four lessons here. The first lesson is kind of a general principle. Uh, We could have talked about this last week. We're going to focus on it this week because I think it fits and it helps us understand how to pray these requests. And then we're going to look at each individual request. Uh, So we're going to come up with four points to remember in Christ's school of prayer. Here's the first one. I think we get this straight out of the gate in verse 9 when he says, Our Father in heaven. Here's our first lesson. As you pray and as you seek to develop a prayer life in, in your own private devotion before the Lord, here's, I think, what Jesus would have us understand first is this. Know who you're talking to. Know who You're approaching. Notice that the first words out of Jesus' mouth as he teaches his disciples to pray contains no request, no petition. The first words are an address. Our Father in heaven. I mean, you could think of this as standing outside the throne room and the deep breath that you take as you remember who you're about to go talk to. I mean, this is that sacred pause before you enter into a conversation with the Almighty. We are remembering, we are recalling who it is that we get to approach. Now, how often are we guilty of just rushing in without any thought of who we're talking to, shouting or claiming things or asking for things, petitioning for things, without any thought of the majesty and the glory of God? And so he begins by saying, here's the very beginning. This should shape the way we approach God is by understanding who he is. And here's the the way he wants us to understand. Our Father in heaven. You could see two aspects of God's character being brought out right here, right? Father, tenderness, closeness, intimacy. If you have a good relationship with your dad, I mean, this would be very easy to understand. Someone who loves you. Someone who wants to care for you. Someone who's interested in you. And yet he brings it, it's not only that. It is our Father in heaven. Transcendent. Holy. Great. Awesome. Different. Set apart. I mean, think with with the way God has revealed himself in Scripture. In Genesis, he's the creator of all things. Nothing exists except that which was created by God. And this is what we see. In Exodus, God is revealing himself as the great I Am who rescues his people from slavery in Egypt. He is eternal, always existing, the first and the last who yet stoops to his people to save them. In Leviticus, we see him as the holy God who demands holiness from his people. In Numbers, he's a judge who executes judgment on the wicked as they don't trust him in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy, he describes himself as the one who holds up his people on everlasting arms. And this God is revealing himself in high, lofty terms, ineffable, majestic, 
totally and completely set apart and different from humanity. He is a God in heaven. He's unsearchable, incomprehensible, immortal, invisible. This God in heaven is so holy that in Isaiah 6, the seraphim cover their faces in approaching Him. This God has myriads and myriads of angels at His disposal. He is everywhere and He knows everything. He in some ways is completely outside our capacity to understand. And yet this God has come to us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus tells us how to pray to this God, He says, call Him your Father. Say, our Father. This ought to be fuel for our prayers. That you talk to a good, good Father when you pray. And that as high and lofty as He is, Jesus has said, hey, the door's open. Hey, come on in. You can address Him. Jesus tells us, pray like this. Pray. It's an imperative. You ought to pray in this way, that you address God as your Father. Intimacy, closeness. Now, I think we need to be clear about something on this. When we talk about God as being our Father, not everyone can pray this prayer. Not everyone experiences God as their Father because if they're not trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, God is not their Father. In fact, Jesus, speaking to the religious people of his day, called some of these Jews sons of the devil, children of Satan. And then people who refuse to trust in Jesus are not experiencing the fatherly care and love of God in the same way that Christians are. And so none of us, if, if you have come to Jesus this morning, if you are someone who in some point in your life have trusted in the finished work of Christ, you recognize God's holiness, your own sin, and you knew that you couldn't save yourself and you trusted for the full forgiveness of sins in the Son of God to pay for them on the cross and you came to Him, well, that means that you were then, by faith, ushered into a new relationship with God where then you could call Him Father. But not everyone can call Him Father. Ephesians 2 People are born children of wrath. Before the grace of God comes in and shatters their self-righteousness and before the grace of God and the mercy of God becomes so real that you just grab onto it and trust in Jesus Christ. Before that, as we're walking in our own way, the Bible calls us children of wrath. But then the Bible doesn't leave it there, of course. The Bible will go on to teach about this glorious truth that we call adoption. You've probably known someone in your life who's adopted a child. That means that child wasn't born into that family. That child was chosen by that family and they're brought into that family and then treated by that family as if it was a real and legitimate son or daughter of that family. And what the Bible teaches is that none of us are born right with God. We're all born sinners who need God's grace. But even though that we were sinners, God adopts us into his family and then declares us to be his sons and his daughters and then invites us to call him Father. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, this idea of a doctrine this doctrine of adoption, it's clear through Scripture in Ephesians 1, is very clear. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. In eternity past, 
God predestined people for adoption. He, he chose people to be part of his family, to be part of his family, his children, that he would love and that he would care for, and that he would save and he would redeem and he would forgive and he would then take home with him to be with him in heaven. In John chapter 1, John is describing the incarnation of the Son of God coming to earth. John writes, but to all who did receive him, that's receiving Jesus, who believed his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He gave them that right. There wasn't some right they earned. It wasn't something they were born into. Because of God's predestining love and because of his current grace on people, People trust in the name of Christ, and as they trust in him and they believe in him, God then declares them adopted children into his family. Galatians 3, for you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the pinnacle of redemption. Listen, why does God justify sinners? Why does he forgive all their sin? Why does he bring them to himself? It is so that he could then shower his abundant blessing on them as a father would his children. It is to show the richness of his kindness throughout all eternity, that he is great and glorious and gives to the undeserving. He is showing off his glory in the way he adopts us. And so you, before Christ, could only think of God in terms of judge. But after your salvation, you came to him and you could think of him as father, as a beloved father, as a daddy that you can talk to, that loves you, that cares for you, that wants the best for you, that's interested in you. And if you're not yet a child of God, then the beautiful news this morning is that by faith alone, not by earning it, not by trying to pile up your righteousness, this is not the way to become a child of God. It's by recognizing your own poverty, that you don't have any righteousness, but by clinging to Jesus. And by faith in Him, He gives you the right to become a children, a child of God. You get that right. And God becomes your father. And God is no longer only a judge. He's a loving father and you're part of his family. You guys ever sit and think and be, just, just, just reflect on the fact that when you pray, you're talking to a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children? I mean, let that motivate you to pray. Before you go and say your prayers tonight, let this thought give you comfort. I am about to talk to my Father who loves me, who wants the best for me. I'm about to talk to someone who will hear me. I don't need to talk and talk and talk and talk like the pagans do, trying to manipulate God so that I get his listening ear. I don't need to do that. I don't need to put on a show like I'm holier than I am to impress God to get him to listen to me. I can talk to him because of him inviting me in through his son and saying, I'm your father now. Talk to me and let this give you comfort that he hears you. I remember hearing a story about Abraham Lincoln's littlest child, a, a little boy named Tad. He had a cleft lip and he had a little bit of a speech impediment. He couldn't talk the way the other kids did. And he was a little bit of a, uh, didn't fit in with all the others. And yet his father, Abraham Lincoln, loved him so much. 
And there would be times when Lincoln, the, the president, would be in, his, in the White House, in the Oval Office, you know, doing big things. And there'd be other officials, government officials speaking to him or debriefing him or something. And they're talking about very important stuff. And little Tad would just burst up that door and he'd come running in and he'd sit on his father's lap. And it was Abraham Lincoln who, he, it wasn't, son, stop right there. I'm doing something, I'm busy. He would tell the officials, hold on, here's my son. And he would open up his hands and he would give him a big hug and he'd invite him to sit on his lap as he talked about the business of the country. And as you just think about this, what, if this is the love of an earthly father and this is the kind of acceptance that an earthly son has to his earthly father, how much more? Do you have access to the Father through the Son? How much more does the love of God invite you into His presence? How much more can you bring all your requests to Him without fear of being rejected? You have all access through Christ. I mean, you could even think of a tender mother and the love a tender mother has for a child. Watching that child grow up, watching that child take their first steps, watching that child make mistakes and the mother will watch and her heart goes out for that child and that mother's ready to meet every need that kid has. And even the imperfect love of a mother is just a small picture of the immense, glorious, never-ending, everlasting love that God the Father has lavished on you. Which is why John, in 1 John chapter 3, he would say, Behold, what manner of love that the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Now let this be fuel for you as you approach God in prayer that this lingers. He is in heaven and so He's almighty, but He has come and He's your Father. Bring Him all your requests. He's hearing you. He's listening to you. He loves you. And so this shapes the way we pray. And now I want to get to these requests that Jesus tells us to pray. And he gives us three uh, things that we ought to pray for. Uh, daily bread is the first thing he mentions. And then he talks about forgiveness, the second. And then he talks about, in this last one, he tells us to pray that we would not be given into temptation that we'd be delivered from evil. And I want to start with this first one. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, keep in mind that you're talking to your father, all right? You're not talking to some distant tyrant who has a closed fist and wants to give you nothing. You're talking to a father with arms open, ready to give you everything you need, okay? And now he asks you, he, he, Jesus teaches you, I should say, to pray this. Give us this day our daily bread. Which isn't to say that God wants you on a diet where you eat bread all the time. <laughs> this isn't teaching, this is not about bread. The point here is that you are to ask God for your daily provision. The daily needs that you have. The physical and material needs that you have for life. Jesus says that you should come to him on a regular basis. This prayer is to be not formulaically recited but to be patterned after and so he says as a regular pattern of our prayer you should ask God for things like finances food on the table shelter 
Even I think this would include things related to your job, things related to your transportation, the regular issues of life. As you seek to live for God and His glory, Jesus says that you should then regularly be praying for your physical provision. Now, if you've ever thought of yourself as a self-made man, this prayer would humble you because there is no such thing as a self-made man. That even those people who do not trust in Jesus, God the, God the creator of all, has allowed them to be fed and cared for and have houses and have cars and God takes care of them even though they don't acknowledge that it's coming from God. There's no self-made person in the world. And we as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, should be the first to recognize that we are a needy people and that we need God every day. And so we should pray for daily bread. It's good to pray for your daily needs. It's not unspiritual to pray for your finances. It's not unspiritual to pray that God would provide. Now, I understand that in America, many of us have never for one second thought about where's our meal going to come tonight because I don't have any money or any food. We don't normally think that way. But how true is it that everything does come from God? And if God were to withhold his hand for one day, we would have nothing. God could give and God could take away. Job knew that very well. And so every day is a gift from God. And then every day ought to be something we're praying to God to provide. And when he provides and as he provides, we thank him for it. God gives physical, material gifts to his children. Now, I think there's a false gospel in the world that will distort this. In saying that we're praying for daily bread, it expands it to mean more than just praying for daily needs. Uh, There's a false gospel that teaches that God wants you to have more than just your needs, but to have prosperity. And that you need to ask God for better cars and bigger houses and fatter bank accounts. And and God, if you're just going to be, if you have enough faith, God will give you all these things. It's called the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. This is something that turns the Lord's prayer on its head. Instead of starting with the glory of God, we start with ourselves, and we think that it's God's duty to be our butler, and prayer is just buzzing that intercom, asking him to come give us all the things we need. It has nothing to do with God's glory. There are people who are peddling this message out in the church. It has nothing to do with sin, salvation, redemption. It has nothing to do with God's gospel. And so it leaves people out of God's kingdom because it doesn't share them the true hope. It's telling them that if you just trust God, he'll make your life easier, more comfortable, and everything will go just the way you plan. And that is not what this prayer is. That is not the true gospel. God has not promised wealth. God has not promised prosperity. But God has promised provision. He hasn't promised your preferences, but he has promised provision. Give us this day our daily bread. And we're going to go in in a few weeks here, actually next week, we're going to look at the fatherly care of God who clothes the lilies of the field and who feeds the sparrows. And we're going to see that God in his goodness loves to take care of us. But it isn't that he's promised to make us rich. It isn't this. 
Now, sometimes we have become so spiritual. We say, well, it's not about the things of the world. It's, it's not about health, wealth, and prosperity. And the pendulum will swing on the other side. And then we'll start to think we're more spiritual if we have less. And we'll think that, uh, like many people throughout the ages, uh, this is why the Roman Catholic Church said that priests can't get married because physical desires are bad. Any desire for physical intimacy is bad. And so the highest form of spirituality is to say no to any desire that your body has. And so people would cut themselves off from society and monks would go live in the middle of the desert and try to starve themselves, thinking that this made them more holy. No, it's not more spiritual. God created the world and he said, it is good. And he gave it to Adam and Eve and he said, go, it's all yours. Enjoy. God never condemns being rich. God never spiritualizes as being more important, being poor. There are pitfalls or temptations in both. We are called never to idolize, to idolize creation. But we can enjoy creation. And so we're not asking for opulence. We're not wishing ourselves for poverty. Our prayers should be, Lord, give us what we need today. In Proverbs, the wise person prays like this. Listen to this. Give me neither poverty nor riches. I mean, what American is praying that these days? I don't want to be poor, but I don't want to be rich either. Feed me, listen, feed me with the food that's needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who's the Lord? Or lest I be poor and I steal and I profane the name of my God. I don't want to have so much that I forget the fatherly care of God, but I don't want to be so poor that I'm tempted to steal all the time. I just want to be given that which I need for today. And this is exactly how Jesus teaches us to pray. Let's pray that each day, God would give us the provision that we need. Now, probably during this time when Jesus was teaching his disciples, there was a famous Jewish prayer that Jesus would have known, and that prayer went something like this. Lord, give us this year's produce, the whole year. Lord, give it to us and and take care of us for this whole year. And Jesus Jesus might have been right here just offering a a little corrective. and saying, Rather than praying that the whole year be taken care of and then you just step back and go throughout your life, what if every day you ask God to provide for that day? Give us this day our daily bread. Trust God for today. Ask Him for today's needs and trust Him for tomorrow. Now consider this. Uh, This is a good illustration that helps you understand why God did it this way. Imagine if the moment you got saved, God as your heavenly Father gave you everything, every physical need you had for the rest of your life. Immediately, he just gave you every dollar you needed. He just put it right in your bank account that you would be good for the rest of your life. Every house that you would need, it was yours. Every meal that you need, it was yours. Everything you needed is right there, just given to you up front that it was yours. You were able to have it. And then the rest of your life, you could just use the things that God had given you. And so the moment you got saved, you'd be rich. You'd have everything you needed. And guess what? you'd probably stop praying. And you'd probably not get the thrill of seeing God provide for you on a regular basis. 
And your love for him would maybe get distant because you weren't relying on him on a daily basis. And so this is what God is like. He has all that stuff. And he has said, it's yours. But he has said this, I will give you all that you need, but come to me every day and ask for it. And every time you ask for it, I will give you what you need. Because I think as a father, he loves our prayers. And he loves seeing how we trust him. He loves providing for us. He loves meeting our needs. He's a good father. He's totally rich. He could just give it all right away at the moment we asked. And yet, being better than even our ideas of good are, he doesn't give it to us all right away. Why? He's teaching you to trust him. So have you asked God about your finances lately? Your daily needs? Your budget? Have you prayed about these things? God loves it as you bring these things to him in prayer. Talk to the Lord today. Ask him today for your needs. Don't project your fears out into next year and worry and worry and worry and worry. Ask him for today's needs, today's provision. And so he tells us in the, as he's, teaching us to pray that one of the first prayers we have for ourselves is for our own physical well-being. And we don't pray for prosperity. We don't pray for preferences. We just pray for provision. And God promises that the provision will be met. And now look at the second lesson he teaches us to pray here. At first, we're, we're knowing who he is as a good father, and then we're now approaching him for our physical needs, but now there's a, we recognize there's, there's more to life than just spiritual, or sorry, than just physical needs. There's spiritual needs, and so Jesus teaches us here, listen, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In other words, as a Christian, as a disciple, we follow the Lord, and we recognize that we sin, and we want that sin to be taken care of and dealt with and in a gracious way. And this is really the heart of Christianity, is knowing that God forgives your sin. And it's amazing, again, let's just remind ourselves of the God's great mercy that Jesus is telling us to ask for forgiveness. Why? Because God is generous to provide it. So he asks us, or he tells us, he teaches us to pray on a regular basis for forgiveness. Now, now this is maybe an interesting prayer that you might have some questions about. Well, why does Jesus ask us, or sorry, tell us to pray for forgiveness? Why would he do that? Because isn't it true that all your sins are already forgiven the moment you trust in Jesus? Isn't it true that I'm objectively, totally, and completely forgiven the very second I put my hands of faith on his finished work, all his righteousness is mine, and all my sins are removed and I'm cleansed? Then why should I on a regular basis ask for forgiveness? I remember being in a prayer meeting uh, years and years ago, and there was uh, a group of us all gather around praying, and one lady started to pray, and I just remember her saying, oh, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, and just kept going off a list of all these things, and I just felt within me, I just wanted to say, you are forgiven, look at the cross. I mean, isn't the cross evidence that your sins are paid for? God has forgiven you. And so, I, I, but I couldn't say that, because I also knew Jesus told us to ask that our debts be forgiven. And so we're not asking to be re-forgiven 
in a final sense every time. There's a different sense of forgiveness here. So Jesus isn't saying that you need to be re-forgiven in every prayer you just get, you know, ask for it again and ask for it again as if the first time wasn't enough. That's not what he's saying. But he is describing a more of a kind of relational forgiveness. Uh, there, there's two kinds of relation, or sorry, two kinds of forgiveness. One would be the full, final, complete forgiveness of sins, and one would be more of a relational forgiveness where I need to be made right with you. Think of it like this. For those who don't know Christ, God is a judge. But for those of us who have come to know Christ, God is a father. As we walk with God, God is both judge and father. We fear him as our final judge. We love him as our close, intimate, tender father. Now, let's put this in human terms. Imagine for a second you have a dad who is a judge. Now, as a relationship, as your daily life, you walk with him as a father. He treats you like a son. You enjoy that relationship. But let's say that you do something foolish and you steal something from your father and you take something precious from him and you try to make it your own. You try to get away with it. But let's say the law catches you and you get caught. And now the law brings you to court and you have to face your father, but you have to face him as a judge. Now that judge might tell you, hey, if you pay the fine and you return the, the thing you stole and maybe you do some community service, you'll be off the hook. And as a judge, you are no longer under the obligations of the law. Now imagine that happens and you're no longer under the obligations of the law, but you come home that night and now you're going to look at your father as a father. Not as a judge. You're not looking at him in the legal terms, in a sense, but you're going to look him in the face as a father. And you have to look at him as something you just, you just stole from him. And he would look at you and he would say maybe something like this. He would say, you know, I love you. You're my son and that will never change. And I will always be your father. But if you steal from me, our relationship will never be strong. And you will never enjoy the fellowship I would love to have with you. Now, this is a kind of analogous to our relationship with God. Now, once you trust Jesus, you are fully, completely, totally forgiven. That can, is unrepeatable. It is done. It is finished. Praise the Lord. You don't have to keep coming back and asking for that forgiveness again because it's final. However, God wants a relationship with you. And he calls you to have a relationship with him. And your sin, if you keep on in sin, you are not going to be experiencing any closeness to him. And as a father, he says, no, here's what you need to do. Ask for forgiveness. Confess your sin. Uh, it cleanses you. It's a cleansing. Uh, it cleanses the relationship. If you are married, think of it this way. Your marriage license isn't the only thing your marriage rests on, Right? You might have something written down on paper, but how strong is that keeping people together forever? I mean, we see people breaking those vows or breaking up those marriages all the time. It's not the paper that keeps you together. It's not the legal, the laws that go around that marriage that keep someone together. It's the way you love one another. It's when sin comes up in a relationship, there's confession, forgiveness, and healing, and reconciliation. Now, God, he has totally, finally, and fully forgiven you. But as the way you walk in obedience in a relationship, he calls you, ask for forgiveness. As soon 
as you recognize that there's sin in your heart, ask for forgiveness. When was the last time in your private prayer you confessed sin? When was the last time in your private prayer you asked for forgiveness? Not because you thought that the cross wasn't enough, but because you knew that that relationship would be strained if you never dealt with your sin with your father. And so he invites us, ask God to forgive your debts. Why? So that you can keep this relationship with your father close. Now look at the second half of this. He says, forgive us our debts. Now this might throw you for a loop. Maybe you've read this so many times you don't even see it anymore. But when you think about what the next section of this little request is, it's a little bit hard to understand. He goes like this. He says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You say, I I don't, hold on. You're asking God to forgive you the way you forgive others? You're saying, God, forgive me in the same way I forgive other people. And that is what it's saying. But we have to understand the implication here. Do you know what this means? This means that people who are following Jesus ought to be so forgiving, so fully releasing people from debts they owe them, that we can honestly say, God, I would like you to treat me the way I'm treating other people. Uh, we say that not in a you know, absolute sense, but in the way that I'm forgiving, in the way I'm letting things go, in the way I don't want to take revenge, in the way I'm releasing people and trusting them to God, forgiving them, Lord, treat me that way. Forgive me that way. Don't hold my sins against me. This is, this is implying that anybody who has a relationship with God, where you know you're forgiven, you also have a relationship with people where there's forgiveness that permeates your relationships. Listen, church, this is so important. Always, from the beginning to the end of Scripture, always, your relationship with God is tied to your relationship with people. And if you want a good barometer of your relationship with God, look at your relationship with people. If you are unwilling to forgive people, it is because you are not forgiven by God. I say that because that's what verse 14 and 15 means. Read it with me. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is not saying you earn forgiveness by forgiving. It is saying that forgiven people forgive. Unforgiving people are not forgiven. And if you go through life thinking, people owe me, people need to pay me something, I got all these debtors, and I'm not going to forgive them any of their debts because the way they've hurt me, then that means you have never experienced the forgiveness that God offers. If you think that someone needs to earn your forgiveness, well, they got to they gotta do something. they got to pay me back. they got to at least show that they're a little sorry or else I'm not going to forgive them. Doesn't that betray that you don't understand God's forgiveness? 
Did you need to earn God's forgiveness? Did you need to pay a little bit to get God's forgiveness? No. This is the beauty of the gospel, that God loved us first before we could do anything to earn anything. We have no merit. The gospel is that God in his abundant and overwhelming love forgives those who trust in Jesus. And we, knowing that we owed a debt we could never pay, but finally being freed from paying that debt, we go to other people and we say, I've been freed, and if you owed me something, you're off the hook. You're off the hook, and we give forgiveness out because we've been forgiven. Forgiven people will forgive. Forgiven people aren't people going around saying, you hurt me, you hurt me, you hurt me, you owe me, and I'm going to hold it against you until you pay me back, until you do what I want. I mean, let this color your closest relationships. If you're married, is there unforgiveness there? Or do you ever let it fester where there are tensions If you've been forgiven by God, then you say, I'm not going to wait for some condition to forgive you. As if God waited for us to meet certain conditions before he forgave us. We say, God forgave me in a way where it was free forgiveness. It was unearned forgiveness. And so I am proactively forgiving you, though you may never deserve it. Are you a forgiving person? Are you holding a grudge, even right now? Are there people in your life that there's just unresolved tension? And maybe you're waiting on them to do something before you forgive them. Well, Jesus teaches us to pray, and in even his teaching of prayer, we are reminded that our relationships with others are so important to our relationship with God. And that if we are truly experiencing the forgiveness of God, we will be giving the forgiveness of God to others. And so we pray, forgive us our debts, Lord. Not because we don't trust the cross, but because we know that on a regular basis we fall short. And Lord, forgive me of those things. I confess those things. And Lord, I want you to treat me the way I treat others. I want you to treat me the way I don't hold anything against other people. I want you to release me from this 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 debt that I've owed in the same way I'm trying to release everyone else from the debts they owe me. And so he teaches us to pray for daily forgiveness. And here's the last petition. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word for temptation in Greek is a neutral word. It could be used as a testing or a trial. But when you see the parallelism here, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we can put one and one together there that temptation is referring to being tempted into evil. This is what the nuance is, is Jesus is praying not merely that we would avoid trials, but that we would avoid being brought into evil and being tempted by it. I mean, falling under it. And this is our prayer. Now, if we, if we see the Lord's Prayer, we, we look at it like a sandwich. And we got the top and we got the bottom. And the first prayer, the first petition, the top of the sandwich here is that we would see God's name hallowed in the world, glorified. That's our longing that Christ is treasured, that his name is exalted, set apart, admired in the whole world. That is our desire. And then by the bottom of this place, when we get to the end here, our prayer is now this. It's, and don't let me throw a blemish on your name. Don't let me, don't let me fall. 
Let me and let us sanctify you. Let my church and all the people with me be those who are hollowing your name. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. And the implication here is that there is great possibility or potentiality in any one of us being led into temptation and being falling into evil. So this prayer is a humble prayer because you can't pray this. You can't pray this unless you come to the end of yourself and you say, I am totally, utterly unable to defend myself unless, God, you jump in and help. Sin is too strong. The flesh is too active. Satan is at work and all these things working against me and I don't have what it takes to resist. And so, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Lord, deliver me from evil. Lord, lead us to be holy, to be set apart. Let our church be separate from evil and pure. And if we don't have a heart that's crying out for these things, we will probably have a heart that's being lured away into temptation. So friends, uh, as you examine your own prayer life, do you come to God knowing what you're capable of in terms of your own sinful tendencies? The first step toward moral failure is believing you're immune to moral failure. The first step toward it is thinking that couldn't be me. Because Jesus is clearly teaching it could be any of us, which is why we all need to pray this on a regular basis. Lord, don't lead us here. Deliver us from these things. And maybe you've heard about financial scandal or moral failure in a church, in the leadership. And I hope your gut reaction to those things is from the core of who you are, you say, I have that in me too, and I could go there too. And unless the Spirit helps, unless God is with me, I will go that road too. And so we cry out in humility, Lord, I know the sin that lives in me and I know my own propensity and I know the potential and I have that same stuff in me and I could go down that road, but Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Don't let me be this failure, this scandal. Maybe... You won't take the first step toward moral failure and to falling into sin and temptation and evil tomorrow. Or maybe it won't happen. But maybe the first step happens tomorrow. Maybe the big blow-up isn't tomorrow, but maybe the first step in that direction it could even be that now, as you roll your eyes at this, <laughs> that this is the very first step toward a giant moral disaster. And the only response here is to humble ourselves, recognize what we're capable of as sinners, and say, God, hold me. 
If you don't hold me, I know what I'm capable of and where I will go. So friends, do you realize that Satan is against you? The world systems is against those people of God who want to walk in holiness. Satan's against you. He sees the cracks in your armor. He wants to exploit them at the right time. He wants to destroy your marriages if you're married. And again, he won't make it blow up tomorrow, but there might be an argument here and a tension there that gets unresolved. And over years, it might end up being something that happens way down the road, and he's patient, he'll wait. Singles, he'd want you to waste your lives, waste these years, these precious years given to devotion to the Lord. We have so many enemies. And even the enemy that's within our own flesh. We are utterly, totally, completely dependent on God. We are like infants set out all alone against a horde of enemies coming toward us unless we call upon our God. And if we call upon our God, we have everything we need to resist the temptations of the devil and even the luring of our own flesh towards sin. If we don't call upon him, we have nothing. And so we are not waging the war ourselves without God. We are saying, God, win the battle for me. Not that we're passive, but the way we fight and the first thing we do in our fighting against the battle, against temptation, is pray and pray and pray that God would not lead us into temptation, but that he'd deliver us from evil. And let's just circle around to remember, you're praying to a father who wants to help you. You're praying to a good father who loves you. You're praying to someone who's there and he has all the resources, all the ammunition, everything you need. It's right there. Now ask, ask. And so pray for your bread. Pray for provision. Pray for forgiveness on a regular basis to keep that relationship close. Pray for deliverance from evil. In a letter home, Spurgeon wrote, He said, get everyone to pray for me. Get everyone you can to pray for me. Prayer is more precious than gold. It makes me rich. And friends, our Heavenly Father has opened the storehouses of his own treasuries, and he's called us to pray, and he's called us to ask for all the things we need. He hasn't promised to just shower us all in one day and give it everything we need, but he has everything. It's all his. He owns it all. And he calls us to regularly come to him with every need we have on a regular basis for his glory. And he desires as a good father to show off his generosity and his power by supplying us with what we need. So we pray. As a church, we pray. As a church, we have great desires, right? Big hopes and big dreams. We want God glorified in the world. We want the gospel proclaimed in our neighborhood and among the nations. We want the lost saved. We want secure finances. We want leadership raised up. We want boldness in evangelism. We want purity to flavor every relationship here. We have a generous father, we have a rich father. Let's ask him again and again and again. Let's trust him that he will give us what we need. We're going to close now. and I want you to bow your heads in a moment of quiet reflection and prayer.
And I want you individually now to come to God and if there's anything to confess, if there's anything to praise him for, if there's any truth to reflect on, spend a minute prayerfully reflecting on what we've heard Jesus calling us to in the second half of the Lord's Prayer.